Don't you just love uh, diner lingo? Uh, give me an Adam and Eve on a rack. Wreck them and make them cry. Give me a Jack Benny, a stack of Vermont, extra axle grease, two Zeppelins, and put that on wheels. Well, in diner lingo, this is two scrambled eggs on toast, topped with onions, um, a grilled cheese with bacon, that's a Jack Benny, uh, a stack of pancakes with maple syrup and extra butter and two sausage links, and this order is to go. Uh, Jack Benny, it's, uh, you may probably, nobody knows except um, those of you who are a little older. Um, Jack Benny was a comedian, um, but grilled cheese, uh, grilled American cheese, G-A-C, but it's pronounced and spelled Jack, and then you had bacon, B, Jack Benny, so shows you the time period this came out. So following suit this morning, our sermon is entitled, Give Me a Tuna on Whole Wheat, Hold the Tares. Uh, and as you may have guessed, we're going to be studying the parable about the wheat, who are the sons and daughters of the kingdom, and uh, the tares who are not. If you turn with me to Matthew 13 this morning, and while you're turning, this is a chapter, it's known for its many parables. There's seven within a single chapter. Uh, there's about 37 or 38 parables in the New Testament, depending on where you land, if you think Lazarus and the rich man is a parable or a real story, since it's the only one that uses names. So 38 and 7 within one chapter in Matthew 13. We see parable of the sower, parable of the wheat, mustard seed, leaven, hidden treasure, uh, the pearl of great price, and the dragnet. And so we get way more than just the facts here. I'm dating myself with all these references. Um, I'm sure you're like me when you read the scriptures. You wonder what it would be like in the first century. You know, uh, when Christ was teaching in person. I mean, last week we talked about the triumphal entry and just how many. Um, uh, there was a huge crowd following him. And the crowd was so large, it's at the tail end of his ministry, and it probably would have been just incredibly huge. But even in the Gospels, we get the indication that uh, the crowds were large even at the beginning of his ministry. The crowds were so large, so thick, that you couldn't even get to Jesus. At some points, his mother and brothers were trying to get to him, and they couldn't because the crowd was so large. Christ is unbelievably inundated with people. What would that have looked like? You know, we, we know what crowds are like. We've been to sporting events. Have you ever been to, like, big cities, New York City or, or Beijing or a touristy spot in Europe um, in a market? It's just gobs and gobs of people. It, 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 almost, it almost looks fake. It's like, where are all these extras coming from? We've been to amusement parks and parades. Uh, my parents used to manage... Uh, the Green Hotel in Pasadena. And it's right on, uh, off of Colorado Boulevard. And you know, every year the Rose Parade goes by there. And so what was cool is we got, since they managed the hotel, we could go up on the roof and look down at the Rose Parade. And it's just, you know, you saw all the people just pressing, pressing, uh, just to see floats. And this is just to see, you know, flowers. Imagine what it would have been like if you were trying to get a glimpse of the guy who you heard has eradicated disease in Israel, or the guy who teaches and confounds the religious leaders. So many people, and this is, you know, at the tail end of his ministry, the crowds would have just been exponentially 
um, huge. Everywhere he went, people were trying to listen, trying to get a glimpse. And you know, not always for the right reasons. Some of them we learned from John just came because they wanted to hear, uh, they, wanted, they wanted to be fed or they wanted to see signs. So the crowds came nonetheless. And so what was that like? Especially when he taught. Because, you know, he taught oftentimes in parables. And we see, uh, you know, his disciples, the closest disciples didn't understand what he was saying. But what about the people that were listening? You know, we always think of, you know, Christ is teaching and everybody is reverent and silent. I I bet there were hecklers saying, "What what are you talking about? I wonder what it would be like. Well, this morning, the heavy lifting has, done, has been done by Christ himself because we not only get the parable, but we also get the explanation of the parable. It's been called the parable of the weeds, parable of the tares, parable of the tares among the wheat, uh, but we really should call it the parable of the man sowing good seed in his field because this is what our Lord calls it. And really, this is the main point. It's the disciples who actually call it the parable of the weeds. Uh, but hopefully by the end of our time, you understand that it's, it's, it's not proper to put the weeds center stage. Well, let's read the parable. Matthew 13, verse 24. He offered to them another parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened to a man sowing seed uh, in his field. But when the men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds between the wheat and went away. And when the grass sprouted and produced fruit, then the weeds were revealed also. And the slaves going into the householders said to him, Lord, did you not sow good seed in your field? How does it therefore have weeds? He said to them, an enemy did this. And the slaves said to him, do you wish therefore for us to go and gather them together? And he said, no, lest in your collecting the weeds, you uproot the wheat at the same time as them. Leave them both to grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I shall say to the harvesters, gather up first the weeds and bind them with a cord and burn them and gather together the wheat into my storehouse. So what are we talking about? Let's not forget. We're talking about, this is a parable to illustrate the kingdom of God. And among other things, this parable shows us that the Lord's kingdom, the Lord's kingdom came about according to God's sovereign will. He's sovereign over the sowing of the seed. He's sovereign over allowing the weeds to grow. And he's sovereign about when he will come back. God is absolutely sovereign. And that is, we speak about sovereignty for a king because it means having supreme and ultimate power. But more on that later. You know, when I was a teenager and I was reading my Bible, and you read the gospel story and, and you, you know, you read about Jesus going to the cross, you think, uh, well, I used to think as a teenager uh, in my feeble mind, ah, everything just went to plan. It's a good thing that it just, it just so happened. Otherwise, we would have no plan of salvation. It's, you know, it's like Super Bowl 43 where, you know, there's 40 seconds to go. There's Pittsburgh and Arizona. And I remember Ma, she said, well... 
we're going to lose because we were three points behind. And I said, woman, game ain't over. And we, we pulled it through, and so Pittsburgh wins. It's not like that. Salvation is not a clutch play where it just so happened and everything, you know, the stars were aligned and, and it, it came through. This is not the kingdom coming. This is not salvation. That's not God's sovereign will. And it's certainly not biblical. God is in charge. But at the outset of understanding something about God's character, something like his sovereignty, we need to confess something critical. We as finite beings are trying to understand the infinite. And so we, are, we have limits, physical, spiritual, intellectual. We have limits because we are finite beings. He is infinite. And yet he has given us this language. He's given it in our language so that we can understand and get a glimpse of who he is. But we have to confess and be humble to know we can't understand him fully. For us to understand God fully is for us to be infinite as well. We think of God as a king ruling a kingdom. And to some extent, that is true because that's what we're given in scripture. And, you know, we think of this king, he decrees certain things and, you know, his subjects may obey or, or not. And we think that's the way God decrees things. But it is not. It would be like a kingdom where the king decrees something and it absolutely comes to pass. Also, in this kingdom, the wicked have to actually come before God and say, may I do this evil deed? And the king would either permit it or not. Doesn't mean he condones it, but he would permit it or not. This is, this is a glimpse into God's sovereignty. Or do you think that Jesus coming and dying on the cross just so happened the right way by chance. That it was, whoo, that was a close one. The babe in the manger almost got killed by Herod. Not even close. Or, whoa, Christ. He was 40 days in the de desert and he was tempted. It's a good thing he didn't sin. Otherwise, the plan of salvation, it would have just went right down the drain. No, that's not the way it happened. Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the desert. But the fact of the matter is Jesus could not sin. Jesus never stopped being the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was both truly God and truly man. He was still the second person of the Trinity. And in his humanity, he was nothing like us in that, insofar as he was not tainted by sin. He was surely human. But he was a perfect human, untainted by the sin that came through Adam. So the fact of the matter is, those 40 days of temptation, he couldn't have sinned because he is God, and God cannot sin. But that doesn't take anything away from him being a sympathetic high priest, tempted in all ways that we are. Or when we look at the cross, do we think, oh, that just happened. It was a good thing, you know, Pilate, you know, acquiesced to the religious leaders and he actually crucified Christ because it could have been his decision and he could have stopped it. No, 
We learn later in Acts 2 by the mouth of Peter that this of Christ going to the cross was his, was God's predetermined plan, his decretive will, what we say, that God decreed it. Alternately, there's things, what we call God's permissive will, what he permits. He permits things. We see this in the book of Job, don't we? We see Satan himself has to actually come before God and say, may I do this to Job? I said, he will curse you if you give me this control over his life. God permits it, but God says, don't touch his health. There were limits. He doesn't curse God. Satan comes back and he says, all right, bone for bone, let me touch his body. He'll curse you. God says, okay, you can touch his body, but do not kill him. And we say, well, that's obvious because if he killed him, it would be over. Not necessarily. Maybe it was the devil's plan to take him to, to death and in his final breath, the devil thought he would curse God. But no, God gives him limits even still. This is God's permissive will. Paul, we even see it in the New Testament. Paul wants to do mission work in Asia Minor. He wants to do Asia, Asia Minor mission work. What's wrong with that? It says in Acts 16, the Holy Spirit did not permit him. God restrains us, even. John 8, they were going to stone Christ. They don't. Why? Because it says Jesus hid himself. Or remember when he went to his hometown and he preached? They hated him and they were going to throw him off a cliff. In God's permissive will, he changed, he thwarted what would have been, according to human history, the end of salvation. God passed through their midst and went his way. This is God's permissive will, what he permits By saying things happen in God's permissive will, we're not to understand that God is a spectator, that he has created and fashioned the world, sits back, and hopes everything goes to plan, or that he's this cosmic cheerleader, hoping, you know, I hope, I hope my plan works. No. There's his decretive will on things he decrees, and then his permissive will on what he permits and alternately does not permit according to his will. But we already know one aspect of this. We quote Romans 8.28 all the time, that he is so big, that he is so amazing, so omnipotent, so omniscient, that he can orchestrate even the bad things and turn it to his will. For we know that all things, God works for all things, uh, for those who love him uh, and been called according to his uh, purpose. You know, he is actively turning all things for his will. Well, this parable helps us in our understanding of God's sovereign will and plan, and specifically about his kingdom. There's not one thing that is described in this parable that doesn't happen according to his will, either his decretive will or his permissive will. 
The Lord of the house has actively sown the seed of the sons and daughters of the kingdom. We'll see the Lord of the house is patient to wait to come until the end of the age. The Lord of the house comes in judgment. The Lord of the house has promised glory for the sons and daughters of the kingdom. First, a note on the word kingdom. This is just the general word for kingdom. This is the same word that's used when Christ is tempted and Satan takes him up and says, I will give you the kingdoms of the world. This is the same word that's used when it says John the Baptist came in the beginning and what did he preach? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus comes, preaches the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's interesting is this parable. Um, it's, we look at this parable and you may not, it's my favorite parable because it, it has the kingdom as both present and yet future. It's one of the few parables that have, that quote Old Testament scriptures. You may not know that. Some see the kingdom as only future. Did you know that? They, they think the kingdom of God is only future, and it's not for today. That even the Sermon on the Mount, which is preached in the, the, kingdom of, the context of the kingdom of heaven, they see as only for yet the future. So we don't have to obey any of the Sermon on the Mount. Can you imagine? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great expositor, he said, the Sermon on the Mount, there's no teaching here to be found uh, which is not also in the various New Testament epistles. Make a list of the teachings here and then read your epistles. All the epistles are meant for Christians today. So if their teaching is the same as that of the Sermon on the Mount, clearly its teaching is also meant for Christians today. Christ reigns in the hearts of believers in the church age, but also something future, the kingdom, where Christ will come, reign literally, physically, visibly, on the earth and praise God we will be with him and at that time the kingdom will be restored to Israel we need to understand that the kingdom of heaven is all within God's sovereign plan look at verse 36 the explanation and first we're going to see the Lord of the house has actively sown the seed of the sons and daughters of the kingdom then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples approached him, saying, Make clear to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And answering, he said, The one sowing the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. Look at what the disciples call it, the parable of the weeds. Um, this is not what Christ calls it. And really, look at his explanation. He doesn't even tell them what the weeds are yet. That'll come later. The disciples, they're so perplexed, so terrified by the weeds. They're like, what are the weeds? Tell us what the weeds are. That's all they see is the parable of the weeds. This is, I should say, this is not the parable in Mark 4, the, the man who sowed seed and went to sleep. Uh, this is a distinct parable, appears nowhere else in Scripture. But Christ tells us that the one who is sowing the seed is the Son of Man, the good seed of the sons of the kingdom. It is the Lord himself, he tells us, who saves. This is both a simple and a fundamental truth. And really, who would debate that it is God who saves? And yet sometimes in our language we say things that make it sound like we kind of saved ourselves. For example, and I'm not nitpicking, I say this as well, 
Colloquially, we say things like, I found God. Yeah, a few years ago, I found God. I studied, I prayed, I found him. And, you know, from a human perspective, we say things like this, and it's, you know, it's, it's justified from a human perspective. But here, we're getting the divine perspective of, of salvation. Here, we're getting the divine perspective of the gospel of a kingdom. So who found whom? I know when I was 15, I heard the gospel and responded in faith. It was as if my eyes were opened, and for the first time in my life, I, I heard the gospel, and I knew I needed to respond, that I knew I was sinful. It was as if I, I wore blinders for uh, my life, and they were suddenly taken off by someone. Who found whom? And it was as a result of reading this, this book that was written Thousands of years previously, God knew one day I would pick it up and read it divinely. Who found whom? Christ died on a cross 2,000 years ago as my substitutionary atonement for sin. He had me in his mind hanging on the cross. Who found whom? Paul's salvation on the road to Damascus was a divine miracle. And we look at that and we say, well, his salvation is completely different than ours. Uh, that was a divine miracle. But don't you see, it's always a divine miracle for our eyes to be opened. He opened the eyes of Paul on the road. Well, he closed them first, then he opened them. You know, my friend, when I was in the army, my friend Frank, he, he was a Christian and we... I uh, used to go to a Bible study together, and he told me his salvation story, and it was, I mean, you can't make this up. Uh, he was in a locker room after a workout, tying his shoes, and on the other side of the lockers, there was a guy giving another guy the gospel, and that guy didn't want anything to do with the gospel. He said, yeah, I, I don't want this. This is garbage. But in the course of him giving the gospel on the other side of the lockers, my friend Frank became a Christian. He never met the guy. He never, uh, to this day, he doesn't know who it is, but he'll meet him one day in eternity. That is God saving. A divine appointment of my friend Frank, who was exactly where he needed to be. Well, the householder has actively sown the seed of the sons and daughters of the kingdom. Conversely, the enemy has sown terrors. And as a result... The Lord of the house is patient to wait to the end of the age. The end of verse 38. And the weeds, finally we get to the weeds, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy, the one who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. These are sown deliberately and actively by the son of man's enemy, the devil. God permits it. He permits it. It doesn't destroy his plan. But this doesn't mean that he's impotent and sits back hoping it doesn't destroy his plan. It is all within his divine will which he permits. And think about it. He's so infinitely patient, so 
we are so utterly sinful and so impatient, we almost can't even understand the patience of God. He's so patient. Why doesn't he, why is God patient? Why doesn't he come back, like, as soon as he said it? Well, he's patient because we've been commissioned, and the disciples were commissioned 2,000 years ago to preach the gospel. And as a result of this patience is um, you, Mr. Weed Plant, and you, Mrs. Weed Plant. That's the result. And he's still yet patient. But when we think about it, it's almost unfathomable. Think of every person on the planet that hates God and speaks ill of God and blames God. Now multiply that by a billion and all the ages and all the centuries. How often are we wronged and someone says something of us and we know it to be untrue and we think we're right and justified? How, how long do we have our mouths closed before we open them to defend ourselves? Not very long. God is infinitely patient to wait to the end of the age and he's sovereign. It's, it's within his sovereign will that he waits. This is both a comforting and a frightening thought. Frightening because he knew all about your sins and my sins before we were Christians. And he saved us anyway. It's frightening that he knows all about us. It's frightening that we were once a tear, but he has now made us wheat. He's patient, truly. But as Second Peter 3, 7 says, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The Lord of the house will come in judgment. Verse 39, Jesus continues, the harvesters are angels, Therefore, just as they gather up the weeds together to burn them up with fire, so too it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather from his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and all those doing lawlessness, and they will cast them into the lake of fire. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, this passage reminds us that God's judgment is coming for the one who has rejected him. But... Don't, don't miss this. It also reminds us, us, that for us there's no condemnation in Christ. That the judgment that is waiting for the tares, we are not in mind there. We are not in view. We know from Romans 8, therefore there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And we know that he continues to empower us to obey and that, you know, that Romans 8, that same chapter, he goes on to say that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. And he, you know, lists all those things and finally, nor anything in all creation. That includes yourself. No one can separate us from the love of God in Christ. But for the one who has not trusted Christ, for the one who has uh, not been saved, for the one who doesn't understand the gospel, who doesn't know the gospel, uh, you may be listening today. This judgment is so terrifying, so horrendous. It's so terrifying that in the book of Revelation, when we see it finally poured out on the earth, 
there is silence in heaven. Silence in heaven. There is supposed to be endless praise in heaven. And when this judgment comes, there is silence because it's so terrifying. To me, it's sickening when people speak so nonchalantly about the majesty of God uh, or the character of God. Um, there are those that say they have visions of Jesus Christ and uh, that, you know, uh, one man said he's shaving in the morning and Jesus Christ caught, uh, frequently comes and talks to him while he's shaving. Or uh, another person said that, you know, I watch Laverne and Shirley with Jesus Christ. These are real stories and absurd stories. What does John do when he sees Jesus Christ? He falls at his feet as a dead man. What do the Israelites do when they hear God speaking from the mountain? They're so terrified, they say, Moses, I, we can't hear this anymore. We're going to die. What do the idol worshipers, the Baal worshipers do when they see the fire licking up the offering on Mount Carmel? They fall down and say, the Lord, he is God. To deny God as judge, to see him as only a loving God, to deny him as judge is to do violence to his character. Well, back to the terrors. There's a weed called Darnell, and it's identical with wheat um, until the latter stages when the fruit comes. And you can tell it's obvious that it is a counterfeit uh, weed plant. And there's a moment in this parable where we don't look at the us and the them. It's a moment where we look at our own hearts and we say to the Lord, Father, am I producing fruit? Am I a tear? Because here's the thing, tares are blinded. Tares can be blinded. The tares may think they're wheat. And there's many who think they are wheat today. There's whole churches meeting today and other days that think they are the wheat. And they come knocking at your door. And they come with doctrines of demons. But they think they're wheat. They're deceived. This parable reminds us to take a long look at ourselves. If we are living like unbelievers, are we the wheat or are we the weeds? Are you light or are you darkness? And this is Paul's admonition to the Corinthians because they were living like unbelievers. And he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ lives in you. And I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation. I'm just, I'm simply saying, look at your fruit. Does Christ live in you? Are you producing fruit? Very often in the Christian life, you know, we take three steps forward and two steps back, and sometimes four and then two. So I'm not talking about if you're struggling. I'm, I'm talking about if you have no care for the things of the world, for the things of God, no care for Christ, that heaven is a thing that you don't even understand. I don't want to praise God for the rest of eternity. He's not worth it. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Last, for those that the Lord has divinely saved and sanctifies, he has promised such riches one day. And this is so good. The end of this parable, just a huge finish. Look at this verse, verse 43. Then the righteous will shine as the sun in the kingdom of their father. The one who has ears, let him hear. 
And you may gloss over this verse and say, yeah, that's wonderful. Um, that's great. But from this one parable, we get uh, the kingdom both present and yet future. And do you realize that when Christ is saying, verse 43, he's quoting Daniel 12. Daniel 12, 2. You don't have to turn there. Many of those who sleep, this is Daniel talking. Daniel prophesied more than 500 years before Christ. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to eternal life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt, the resurrection. Verse 3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Christ is quoting Daniel 12, Daniel, who already prophesied about the kingdom to come, about the resurrection. And what's so amazing about this is that Christ in his humanity as a first century Jew learned these scriptures in Daniel and then weaves them into this parable. It's just, it's beautiful. The word then we see here stresses the contrast from now, though we are maligned now as weak, uh, as Christians, though we are the weak, though we are the lowly now, though we are the feeble-minded, fairy tale believing fools, so the world says, but then, then, because of Christ, we will shine like the sun. I mean, can you imagine this, that a day is coming? I mean, this is, this is as Tao so often says, this is not a fairy, fairy tale. This is real that one day, this day is coming where we'll be in the kingdom. We shall be like Levi, Revelation says. We're all going to be priests and reign with Christ. Uh, Christ himself, God will be our portion as Levi. And we think it's so far off. We live in this sinful world and we think it's just, it's so far off, but you know what? It's closer today than it was yesterday. And it's real. And this is where I want to be, don't you? Do you think of this life in light of eternity? Because if you do, you could say with Paul that, you know, the present suffering doesn't uh, compare with the glory that's going to be revealed. There's going to be a day where you look at me and I look at you and we say, we're here. And we look over and point over there and say, there he is. Well, I'm so glad the disciples asked what the parable meant because the explanation by Christ, it's just so good. Um, it's just, it's my favorite parable. It's just so wonderful. 